Thank you for joining me today for this very special episode of Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. Well, today it's not just a podcast about the act of cinema because this is a extra long crossover episode with the war podcast Popular Front as hosted by Jake Hanrahan. I cannot recommend this podcast enough. It is not only entertaining, but it is highly educational on some really niche aspects of war and conflict that you probably don't even know about right now. We are going to be talking about a wide variety of different subjects this evening. The film at the center of the conversation is Pi, Darren Aronofsky's first film. If you find yourself engrossed in the conversation and the subjects that are discussed, go to popularfront.co and you will be able to find Jake's entire catalog of episodes as well as his documentaries, writing, and everything else that he has produced. Just one last thing before we get to the actual show itself, head on over to lowres.live if you're interested in checking out the latest line of merch. We have a brand new exclusive collective t-shirt for $21 in the store. It just landed there this week, brand new. And the official Let's Play crewnecks are selling out, so please scoop those up while I still have them. Every single purchase you make helps support this show and all of the many projects that we have in the works over here. Lowres.live and popularfront.co. Enjoy the show. Pi is a black-and-white thriller that was released in 1998, 20 years ago, by the then-novice filmmaker Darren Aronofsky, shot on what I could only assume is 16mm film and a budget of just slightly under $70,000. It stars Sean Gillette as Max, an unemployed number theorist and apparently master computer builder who discovers a 216-digit code that Max and some of the film's peripheral characters believe to be a conscious number that represents the name of God. So this number is spit out by Max's self-made computer seemingly at random one day, and after regaling this to friends and people of interest, there's a mixed reaction of both concern and intrigue. Max's close friend Saul, a mathematician, informs Max that he too had come across that number at one point and warns him to take it easy in researching it. Meanwhile, Max's pal Lenny, a Hasidic Jew who deals with numbers in relation to the Torah, seems almost as obsessed with figuring out the number for his own personal motivations. It is later discovered that realization of this number can have profound effects in people and leads to some silliness like Max being able to predict the stock market, but it can also cause strokes and death. Now, Jake Hanrahan, the captain behind the often fascinating and niche documentary series and podcast, Popular Front, is the guest today. So I just want to start off with two questions here. First of all, do you think that was a well-rounded summary of the film? And second, why did you pick this movie? First of all, yeah, definitely, I think it was. Um, and secondly, because it's one of the most intense films I've ever seen in my life. I remember watching it one night. It was on Film 4, like this this channel here in the UK, and it was like 2 in the morning or something like that, and I was couldn't sleep. So I put it on, and I remember just being like, what the fuck is this, you know? And, and the way it's shot and the, the kind of aesthetics of it is just perfect, I think. And I think it 
it's one of those films that can be interpreted in many different ways, but it's not shit. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So many of them films, it's like, oh, there's so many meanings, man. It's like, yeah, but all of them are shit. Whereas Pi, I think it's just, you know, there's so many different things that you, you could interpret from that film. And all of them kind of, you know, are kind of as fascinating as each other. I agree. And I, I do want to get into your personal interpretation of the film. But let me ask you, are you a fan of Darren Aronofsky or is this just like a one-off for you where uh, this just clicked with you and maybe his other films not so much? Yeah, it's it's more the latter. Like, I don't really like any of his other films, to be honest, that I can even think of. I remember when Black Swan came out, that's his film, right? Yep. And everyone was, you know, kind of crying about how good it was. And I watched it and I was just like, like, whatever. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. What, what was that? Um, so, no, I, don't, I find he's one of them... Sometimes he's one of them filmmakers where it's it's a lot of hype and it's like, oh, have you seen the new Aronofsky film? And it's like, whatever. But Pi, like, he's clearly very talented because he made Pi, you know, and I think it's a really incredible film. But nah, I'm not I'm not really into it. I'm not into his uh, his kind of more, I guess, mainstream films. I find him to be somebody who's buried up his own ass, especially lately. <laughs> uh you take a look at like a lot of his earlier films, and I hadn't seen Pi until you had recommended it for the show. Uh, but I liked Requiem for a Dream, which was another one of his. He put it out. I oh think, yeah, like, of course. Yeah. Th three years after this one, that was really the one that made him pop. Uh, you know, I know that he wound up landing a lot of uh, studio deals, and I think he was in talks to do uh, Batman Year One for a while as a result of this movie. So it, it's kind of crazy how you look at this movie that was only shot on seventy thousand dollars, and you know it. It doesn't look – it has, like, a cool texture and a cool look to it, but it doesn't look great as far as, like, movies go. Mm. And if that ushered him to uh, huge potential uh, franchises that, that are coveted within these systems, at least back in the day. Um, so th this, is, this was a really interesting movie because I wasn't quite familiar with Aronofsky's start as a filmmaker. And it was both more impressive to me – and a little more amateur than I was expecting of him. Because, obviously, you know, you're working on that kind of budget. So some of the, like, the peripheral actors are you know, maybe not amazing. Yeah, like Lenny. Hi, I'm Lenny. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> yeah. he, he just really cuts through the tension with this bizarre kind of entry scene. But, he, you know, the, the, the scene in the... Uh, in the synagogue, I think he's really good, you know. I, would, I wouldn't even say flashes of brilliance. There's definitely scenes here that are masterfully done and very impressive for a first-time filmmaker. So how far back did you discover this movie? Uh, I'm, well, I'm 28 now, so I would have been about 23, 24. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I didn't know anything about Aronofsky. I didn't even know who made the film. You know, I just put it on. It was one of them ones. I was like, what the hell is this? Looks cool. Um, and also the topic I'm interested in, not that I believe in it or anything, but I'm interested in that kind of deep numerology and these religious sects that think they can work out the future or the coming of the Messiah. And the film kind of, I don't know, it's a bit of a scramble of all of that kind of culture as well as... You know, you've got the Wall Street guys are in there and everybody's chasing something different via this one guy, you know. And I, I just, I don't know, it just really, it made me, it kind of blew my hair back, you know, when I watched it. And I watched it again and I've seen it about four or five times now. So, yeah, it's one of them ones that just sticks in my head. And I like the way it looks. When you see inside Max's flat, that is, it's like a new level of cyberpunk in the most low-tech way possible. You know, I think it's amazing how they've done that. He's even covered the windows with cardboard and, you know, it's just a fascinating um, 
kind of setup he's got there. Yeah, you don't really see too many other movies taking something like you had just stated, that cyberpunk kind of aesthetic, and then moving it into something that's completely different of that, which is this grainy, black-and-white, high-contrast look. Uh, that the film possesses throughout. It's it's really interesting. I think I, I remember uh, seeing like advertisements and uh, you know just little, little random pop up things about this movie when it first came out. And I think it does something really well that has kind of been lost since then, probably because of you know like hipsters and gentrification in New York City. But it really captures the kind of like dirty, seedy underbelly of New York in the late nineties. Yeah. Uh, fairly well, which is something we've definitely lost. But uh, you know, other movies around that time and series did that particularly well. Like uh, off the top of my head, uh, Spawn. I think Dark City has kind of a vibe of that. I don't know if you've seen Dark no. City. It's more of a science fiction film. But uh, that that's definitely something that's been lost, which I took away from this film and really appreciated. Eleven twenty-two. Personal note: Saul died a little when he stopped research on Pi. It wasn't just the stroke. He stopped caring. I've never been to America. Like I can't, as you know, I have troubles with a, uh, my visa situation, so I can't come. So I've never been. And like the New York that I see in Pi is kind of the New York I want to visit. Now, I know that's not going to happen because it's not 1994 or whenever this film was made, 98 or whatever. But um, yeah, it's it, it looks really cool. And to me, you know, growing up, you know, I was born in 1990. That is... It's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cartoons New York. You know what I mean? It's that yeah, kind yeah, yeah. of version of New York I have in my head. I know that's not a real version, but I really like, I don't know, I just like that vibe it, it gives off, you know? Yeah, well, I cut my time between uh, New York, specifically Long Island, but I got to hang out in Manhattan quite a bit, and just like the backwoods of Massachusetts, which are terrible. It's fucking <laughs> awful out here. Uh, but New York City now, I'll tell you what. It's not entirely scrubbed of that. The vast majority of it is, uh, you know, it's more like tech bro shit. Ugh, but, uh, you know, if you, rub, <laughs> if you ride the subway after a certain hour, you know, like for me personally, I, I remember I, uh, there was a guy maybe like six foot six dressed as Batman and he had a shower curtain as a cape. So like there's definitely that weird, <laughs> disgusting aspect of New York that's still present, even if that kind of technology and big money has built a new sheen over it. Tell you what, it reminds me of actually that just popped in my head. Have you ever seen the photography of the Guardian Angels kind of street militia kind of thing that was on the subways uh, in the 80s, I think it was? And there's a lot of photography of them just kind of standing around on the on the trains, the underground trains with like knives and shit. You know, I think they were they were trying yeah. to do this. I don't know, trying to like police the area. I think it was they saw warriors and just you know <laughs> they they went a bit too <laughs> yeah, far. Yeah. But it has that vibe, you know, and I think that kind of kind of joined the two things up in my head a little bit. Well, that's something I want to touch on that you had actually brought up, which was that there are fringe groups in this particular movie that you know there's a conspiratorial element to it, yeah. and that obviously relates to what you're doing day in and day out. So. I do want to talk about the movie mainly and just film in general, but I also want to get into some of the stuff that you do because obviously there's a different kind of audience here who might not be immediately familiar with your stuff, but I've, I, I've put up some of the stuff that uh, you've done in my brand new section on, on YouTube. So I'm sure some people yeah, are really appreciate that. that man. Thanks very much. Why don't you just talk about what it is you do? Cause you are a filmmaker, albeit a different kind of filmmaker than 
know, Aronofsky or, or anyone who deals with like necessarily a scripted narrative, but sure. So, um, I guess I'm a, I'm an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker, and I've been doing this about six years now. Um, I used to work at Vice News as a uh, on-screen correspondent and producer. So I was making docs. Uh, what do you guys say? Host. I was a host. So, you know, I was in front of camera and I would produce the docs for a bit. And that was really cool. That kind of gave me my start and kind of made me who I am really. Like made me, kind of gave me the, the path to be a journalist because um, I didn't do any school or anything. <laughs> so I didn't really have any, any way to get there otherwise. And, you know, Vice News is very different now. I made a few a few docs with them when it became Vice News HBO. But I, I don't really, I don't appreciate the work they do. Uh, so I left. So now, um, after about two years freelancing and realizing that I think journalism, kind of big journalism, we've spoke about this, but you know, big journalism is in uh, is in a big problem. You know, it's there's there's a big bad situation with it right now. I don't want to get too much into that because I'm always harping on about it. But I think that now is the time for independent media to really start flourishing again, like it did when the internet started getting fast, you know, when YouTube was actually quite good, when it was still the Wild West internet. I think there is a time for independent media to come back around again, which is why, you know, I like your stuff. This is why I kind of found your stuff, just looking at, you know, who's doing something weird or different or whatever. So I started this, um, I guess it's a platform now. I say it's independent conflict journalism. It's called Popular Front. Oh, yeah, I should have said that all my focus is on uh, war and conflict, uh, crime and politics sometimes as well, but mostly war and conflict. I went out to a lot of, you know, war zones um, and covered that from the ground because I think that's the best place to do it from. So now I've started my own platform, Popular Front. It's a podcast, but also we're doing docs. I want it to branch out and become a lot bigger. I'm trying to keep it independently funded. So with Patreon, with various other things, um, so yeah, it's going well. It's really I'm really surprised. Like the way I've done Popular Front, it has a bit of a like, if you don't like us, go fuck yourself attitude. I'm not trying to do that, which sounds really lame. I don't I don't be like, oh I'm so cool. But you know what I mean? It's like Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that thing of like, oh, we want to include everybody and no, like if you like it, it's for you. If you don't, it doesn't matter. Like we don't you don't have to like it. I wanna have that vibe of like, look, we're getting very, very niche, really into the details you're never gonna see in the news. And so far, people really like it. You know, people really have just just been messaging me saying, oh, I think it's great. Like, it's different. And you have to understand in my circles, like conflict journalism, you get a lot of people with a stick up their ass. They think they know it all. They're the big man in the room, which I, I'm probably sounding like I know it all now, which I hope I don't. But, you know, people that talk down to you. And I don't think that's useful at all especially when you end up in these these war zones these conflicts and the people you're meeting are normal people they're not talking to you like you know oh yeah you better listen to us you know they're, they're just they're cool normal people a lot of the time albeit not doing the best things but whatever so i was like i want to kind of incorporate that hanging out with a regular fighter's attitude into a you know conflict journalism whilst also kind of being very very serious but not taking ourselves too seriously that's what i'm trying to do yeah, it's kind of working. I like the vibe, you know. I've kind of brought my own aesthetic to it, which you've helped me with a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I, you know, that's the long-winded version. Well, I, I think you've definitely been successful at it thus far. But I actually think what you're doing is a great way to try and solve this this journalistic problem. I think it's important to create new areas of interest for people beyond outrage or or whatever it might be that deals specifically with contemporary 
in really menial political matters or, or cultural matters. I think there has to be new venues of, of journalism for people to explore and find interest in and click on so they can eventually weed out everything else that's going on, mm-hmm. which I, I think is happening slowly but surely. I think so. I, I'm positive in a weird way. Like, I, I, I agree with you, like, you know, screaming about Trump tweets or whatever or crying at the left or crying at the right. That's not our currency. We're not interested. You know, that's what I want to be like. We, we're not. That's Leave that over there for everybody else to do. And then we'll just get into this nitty gritty thing. Like, we have a Discord server and there are a load of different political ideologies. And, you know, people are just get on <laughs> because, you know, the idea is the popular front. It's like we come together to talk about this one thing. And that's fine. We don't all have to agree on every facet of life to be in the gang, if you know what I mean. I hate that vibe. I, look, I love journalism but and I love media, but I, I just think the industry is horrific. To it be is. <laughs> you yeah. know, right now it is horrific. But that's also part of the reason why what you're doing is so refreshing is it doesn't feel like there's a counter agenda in play. If you tune into any episode, it's literally just here's an explanation of what's going on in fucking i don't know istanbul or or wherever it might be you know Mm. and you get the story and you get that perspective from the person that you're talking to and i don't know i just think it's really cool what you're doing thanks very much man you've been very helpful as well with the whole kind of startup as well man it's been great was it the 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 subject matters uh that vice was tackling that got you interested or was it more becoming a creative facet of them and being able to deal with cameras or, or tell a story or a narrative through real life events. What was it that got you working in that field? Um, I think I always, you know, I always, I'm, I'm not very good at much, you know, but I think I'm all right at writing, you know? And so when I finished school, I kind of left when I was like 16, I didn't, didn't go to college or anything like that. I was just, a, I was just mm-hmm. an idiot, you know, I was just, just wasting my time. And, you know, I had certain things happen in my life and I thought, right, I need to, you know, I need to knuckle down. I need, I need a career. I can't just be working on the building site or working at a gym, you know, like a proper, proper thing. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy, like, if I don't love what I'm doing, I can't stand it, you know? So I thought it wasn't like, oh, I got to work so hard. I was like, I just have to get out of this, you know? And, and like I said, the only thing I was good at at school was writing. So I was writing and kind of got a little buzz from you know journalism in that in that sense um and I don't know I've always been drawn towards things that happen you know people talk a lot I like people that do things and things that actually happen uh, rather than theory or whatever and I think war it's you know it's that crossing over the line all the time there's always one guy who's crossing that line and actually doing shit or making shit happen it's terrible often but I'm just quite interested in that it doesn't mean I support it it doesn't mean I think violence is good certainly not but it's just an interest to me so I, I looked at all the kind of war reporting and I was like oh I, I'm never going to be able to do that I'm never going to be the kind of guy that can do that whatever and to cut a long story short, I saw the trailer for Vice News, the very first trailer. And I'd been writing for Vice now and then. I wasn't really interested in the, like, you know, LSD butt plug kind of stuff that was going on then. But, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I like this series. That's stuff. more modern Vice. I mean, they definitely had that shit back in the day. But it's really become the focal point of the whole company now. Right, exactly. So when Vice News came out, I saw this trailer and I just thought, that's everything I I like about Vice in one place without the stuff I don't like. So I was just bugging the i got the email of the guy that ran vice news kevin sutcliffe like best boss i've ever had and i was just bugging him like you have to let me work for you you have to let me work for you i've got ideas you know i was like this i was yeah. that kid who's like you got any games on your phone you know i was like turning up came to the office i was like kevin kevin i got this idea he's like 
he's kind of like, oh, for fuck's sake, what do you want now? Like, and, and then he's going from up north here. And eventually he listened to me and he was like, yeah, you're all right. And I came on as a researcher and he said, like, you want to do documentaries? I said, yeah, one day. And he was the kind of guy that was just like, fuck it, let's, all right, if you can come up with an idea, you can make one. And then, it, yeah, it kind of went from there. And through that, I learned about cameras and, you know, media and how to produce and build a story. Like, when I started, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was useless, you know. And eventually, I kind of learned my craft. But I don't, you know, I don't think I'm great at what I do. I don't think I'm an incredible documentary maker. I just think I can give context to things quite well and and, and try and remain kind of in the throes of things, which I think is important. I don't think you should ever step back too far away from the field, if you like. But mm. uh, yeah, man, I, I learned it. And through that, I kind of had a real love for like media. Now, I think, I don't know how many years I have left doing this, you know, in conflict, because, you, you know, your luck will run out eventually. Um, so I think eventually I want to get into doing other stuff, you know. But right now, it's all focused on Popular Front, really. Up to a point, you and I have almost like an eerily similar trajectory. As really? far as, Tell yes. Me. So I was terrible at school as well, except for writing. And the only reason why I actually graduated high school is because the city that I was in had a night school program to put all like the stupid kids in so they would have a higher <laughs> graduation rate. So I, I knew that and I was like, fuck it, I'm not going to school. I, I hate these people. I hate these teachers. I like one subject. I don't want to do any math. I'm going to fail these courses. I'm wasting my time here. So at the time, I would just cut out of school and I would go home and eat pizza rolls and take a nap. I gained like 50 pounds. It was terrible. I had enormous tits. It was bad. But <laughs> I, I got into night school. I graduated. Uh, I did go to college for a while, which was a tremendous mistake. I, I almost envy you there. For the longest time, I was I was trying to get into Vice. I was, tr but I, I was more of a fan of the uh, like the Gavin McInnes era of Vice. Like street boners, <laughs> do's and don'ts. And, and well, that, that's funny too, because it now ties into almost a similar thing with what you're doing now with that whole mess over there. I don't know if you heard about the uh, the newest FBI extremist group, the Proud Boys. Oh, or, uh, they're, they're so embarrassing. I can't believe that anyone would join them. Like grown men, grown men joining that group. You fucking losers. You fascist like fucking losers, man. I can't stand them. But yeah, FBI, how hilarious. They got in one street fight. <laughs> Like, what the fuck? I, I, I had uh, interviewed both Gavin McInnes before all that for uh, a publication that I started because I couldn't get, get or become part of Vice because they didn't want me to do any writing or any, uh, like, documentarian shit. So I was mm. like, well, fuck you. I'm going to make my own thing. Yeah. And that's that's how I wound up making, uh, like, basically, it's a publishing company now. Clash, right? Yep, that's right. And uh, from there, I was like, yeah, this shit's lame. I'm just going to get into video work. And here we are today. But just to touch back on that real quick, yeah, I, the, the Proud Boy shit is so just like amusing to me how bad it's gotten. Because I, I had interviewed one of those guys, like one of the Gavin McInnes' lackeys, basically, who does like his dry cleaning and shit, maybe about a year ago. And he's like, oh, it's a drinking club, it's a drinking club, we hang out, you know? You know, I'll tell you what, Gavin McInnes, he strikes me as the guy that, you know when you're in, what do you guys call it, high school, right? And there's always, like, popular guys that are kind of funny because they're like, oh, he's a bit dumb. Yeah. Like, he'll staple his hand together, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you, yeah. you, Yeah, and you stop being 15 and you go, like, that guy's a fucking dickhead. Like, I, and he comes near you and you're like, yeah, just, just leave me alone, man. Like, I'm, not, I'm not interested in, you, in your, your tomfoolery anymore. He's the guy that he's still that kid, but he's a grown adult, you know? Like, that's what I think of him. I just think of him as this embarrassing guy. You know, I, I, everyone's like, he's a Nazi. He's not a Nazi, but I certainly think he's bordering on being a fascist, you know. I, and I, I'm not one to throw that word out easily. I don't like this whole everything I don't like is fascism, you know. But he certainly has that 
that vibe, you know. Maybe not fashion, but you know, like fash, trademark, that kind of vibe, you know. And it's just so embarrassing that that people are, I think, are so lost that they will look at the Proud Boys and be like, yes, I want to be in that gang. Like, what the fuck, you know? It's just embarrassing, I think. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does speak to a greater cultural problem, I think, that is specifically affecting, like, men of our generation, I guess. I think that's a very apt description of Gavin McInnes. And, like, I, I think it just goes to show, like, joining groups is a bad idea. You can't control the image of a of a group. It's always going to go south, regardless of how well-intentioned it might be or whatever it means to you. Um but anyway, we're, we're we're kind of straying from the from the point of pie here. I don't I don't know. Actually, I, I did have a separate question for you because I I I feel like I heard this on a podcast or something where you're talking about fascism and you you believe that fascism is on the rise. I do. Yeah. You deal with these groups in a particular way, like uh, what was it, Adam Waffen? You've done. I don't, I don't want to say I broke the story, but I did a lot of work on it. And then Frontline PBS nicked all the work <laughs> and of my, my and Ali Winston is an excellent journalist. He's with the New York Times. Now, me and him spent about eight months digging into uh, into what they're doing. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I, look, I, think, I think fascism is on the rise. I think there's a huge problem with um, the far right seeming cool to lost yeah. young nihilistic men. Um, if you think like bashing someone over the head because their skin color is different is cool, fuck you. Like, you know, we've got a big problem and I do see that happening. Um, I remember when I was at Vice News, right, where it was like 2015, uh, and I'm sure someone will correct me on this, but I, I, this is what I saw. And like every so often, a boss would be like, right, can you stop going to the Middle East so much? You know, is there anything interesting happening in Europe? And generally, it was like, not really, a few fascist marches, you know, but nothing really happened as a little fight. Now, fuck, man, if if, Kev, if this was that time now, I'd be like, Kevin, I've got 20 stories for you, you know what I'm saying? So I, I do see it on the rise and like pan-fascism as well, like groups linking up all over the world, that's definitely on the rise, I think. And I, I just think, look, I, I'm not, I am not one... I don't know what my ideology is, you know. I'm quite interested in the concept of post-leftism, but even then, I wouldn't say I am that. Um, sure. And I'm certainly not a communist or anything like that. I can't stand them guys either. But I, I think, um, I, I don't know. I just think there is a problem where suddenly being racist is people feel safe to start being racist out in the open again, you know. Now, if you want to be a racist in your own house, in your own head, I don't like you, but okay, whatever. That's your right in a free country. But if you want to start coming out in the streets and affecting other people's lives because of your, because of your beliefs, that for me, I think is a massive problem, you know, and I think it's being sure. overblown. But look, Atom often people are like, oh, they're just LARPers. It's like there are four bodies linked to their name, you know, four people killed, three or five people killed, sorry, you know. So it's uh, okay in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of small, but the ideology I think is becoming kind of cool for some people, and that's a big worry. And if you look at the left, that's about the least cool thing you can possibly do. You got, you got, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, you're and, right. And I, and I like leftist ideals. You know, I believe in kind of the the, the basics. But I'm talking about America now. In the Europe, in Europe, they're pretty fucking hardcore, and they know what they they believe in. But in America, I just think like you guys, what do you what do you even believe? You know, like it's it's just I don't know. It's the least. I don't know how, right? So you guys, America. And I'll get a lot of stick for this. I don't care. America is the people that came up with the term on steroids. Yet your Antifa are like the most embarrassing Antifa that ever existed. It's mm. like, how? Why aren't they the best? You know, there are some groups that were like leftist gun clubs, which I, I'm in favor of. I think that's cool. But whatever. You know, it's a weird, it's a weird situation. 
for a long time I've had the more optimistic view that uh, it's not that these these fringe factions or beliefs are necessarily growing, but that people just feel more comfortable voicing them. And so it, it's the same, roughly the same amount of people, but just more vocal about it. Mm. But you actually think that there is substantial growth here, or, or at I least do, a steady because, growth. Because uh, you are right. I think you're right there. They're being more vocal. But when they be more vocal, kids that might not really pay much attention might start paying attention. And we do have this kind of late stage capitalism hellhole vibe and this weird neoliberal vibe, which is just, I think when you dive into that, you can get a headache as much as looking at the fascists at times. So for a kind of disillusioned young white lads, which there are a very big amount of in the West, obviously, it's bad because they might start listening to that and suddenly be like, oh, I never considered that before. But, you know, this guy seems cool and he he's out and he's brave and he's talking about it. I'll listen to it. And it's, you know, it's not the way to go. I'm not I'm not telling anyone to do anything, but I just think I, I just I hate fascists, man. I just hate them. I, like, who the fuck are you to tell people how to love, how to think, how to do this? It's totalitarianism, fascism. Mm-hmm. It just makes me sick. You know, it rubs me up the wrong way. Yeah, I, I, I am personally opposed to any kind of authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's my stance. Yeah, I, I hate all authoritarianism, you know, like my own personal autonomy is, is for me and as it should be for you, you know, like, which sounds funny because now I'm just like, fuck purchase. But look, the, their ideology for me is like destroying that concept, you know. Well, I, I think also the big difference uh, between you and maybe your average leftist twitter journalist is that you're you're giving detailed reports on these things you know you're getting kind of involved in the shit as opposed to just making grand assumptions about the motivations of certain groups like uh you know dummy factions like the proud boys or what have you yeah yeah. like they don't interest me you know atom often were the most extreme of the extreme myself and ali winston got into their discord server we like we stripped all, we got all the messages from it. You know, we found out all of this stuff. We found out members, we found their addresses. And, you know, it was something really interesting to get into and find out what they really believe in. And, yeah, I want to get in the nitty gritty. You got a lot of journalists that just go on Twitter and scream fascist at people because they made a joke. Like, fuck that, that's boring, you know, and that's not helpful for anything. In fact, I think that actually pushes people towards fascism. If you can't even have a fucking joke, you know, within reason, but if you can't even have a joke then, you know, kids are just going to go, right, I'll go where I can have the joke, you know? Let me ask you something, because I, I, I'm, I'm more of a, uh, I wouldn't call myself a centrist, but I, I, I don't really identify with any kind of political ideology. My opinions shift quite a bit. That's the way it should be. I think it should be. Ideology should be forever um, changing, I think. Sure. At first, I, I kind of had more of a, you know, I thought, okay, well, we're, we're going to come out of this whole mess of a situation that's going on uh, culturally in the West, and it's going to be okay at the end of the day. But as time goes on, I'm starting to become less and less convinced of that. So where do you see things actually going? That's a great question, man. Um, I see bad bad things ahead personally but i am like i'll admit it i'm a bit of what they call a doomer so you know you get like boomers oh, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah these guys are kind of a bit of a doomer like you know i'm like oh apocalypse now but only because i just i don't know i see so much frustration you know and i just don't see you know i see the fascist guys and i think fuck that's bad and then i look at the kind of neoliberal side of it and i think oh god that's absolutely terrible as well sure 
And then I look at, you know, leftists and then I see like, oh, what the fuck are you guys, you Maoists? Like, are you mad? And, you know, and <laughs> yeah, then I yeah. just, so I, for me, I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't even, I don't know where it's going. There were people that I like, I talked to, you know, like I did this thing about pine tree Twitter, you know, there was um, this pine tree, these kind of Ted Kaczynski followers and stuff like that. And I remember people just like, well, Ted Kaczynski's a fascist. And so well, have you even read his book? I don't need to. It's like, wow, okay, because in the book he says that Nazis are kooks and that he supports black liberation, militant black liberation movements. You know, he does hate leftists, but that doesn't make him a fascist, you know. So if anything, he argues for total freedom, you know. Not that I'm a fucking Ted Kaczynski guy, you know, like I find his work interesting, but what he did was awful. But when you can't even have that discussion anymore, I think all it does is lead to bad things because you just get this constant loop, you know. And talking about technology, it kind of goes back to pie, really, you know, like... I think that the technology is a big issue. You know, there's a big feedback loop. And there's also like, this sounds weird, right? But you, you'll probably relate to this. I was reading, um, I was reading this book the other day and I can't remember what it was specifically, but it was saying, oh, all of these people wrote letters into the editor and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, just think about that basic thing of sitting down, thinking about what you're going to say, writing the letter, putting it in the envelope, still thinking, yep, I'm going to send that and sending it. Like, it's a more, even, I'm sure most of those letters were stupid, but people can't even be bothered to do that now. Could you imagine someone sitting down, you know, like a 20, 25-year-old or whatever, sitting down to write a letter and sending it off to an editor? I think just that concept is gone, and I think even the even the physical aspects of doing things manually like that are very important to the to the brain, to the psyche. Right. You know, the way you receive information now is just, is bananas i think you know and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a fucking hypocrite because i'm on twitter a lot but i do have that you know like once a week i turn my phone off all day and you know i got friends like you're a fucking weirdo like what are you doing and it's like what like that's not weird man but it is now i guess you know so i i don't know i'm people like you people like me i i think we're, we're kind of we're gonna be like the 50 year olds who uh you know back in my day and i'm you know probably kids will be running around with microchips in their head or whatever and it will all be fine but my personal opinion is i just don't think it can lead anywhere good i think it leads to more disillusionment and hate and frustration and anger you know being away on vacation in uh korea and japan and just getting footage and not being on the computer as much as i am which is a disgusting amount Sorry. uh just based off of yeah you you relate like everything that my, we're my doing friends here joke is... with me they call me an incel like because i spend most of my time in my flat researching you know networking whatever like it's fucking crazy also what i do have to remind myself of after going on those rants is you know, I'm a very online guy, you know, like in my circles, like that I'm on in online, it seems like a bigger problem actually than it is. Because, for example, I have, uh, you know, when I was working at Vice, there were various, I don't know, like scandals, like race, like blah, blah, this, that, and the other. Someone had did something, I don't even know, you know, not like in Vice, but like something had happened and everyone in Vice was kind of, you know, up in arms about it. And I'd go, you know, I don't live in London. I never lived in London because I fucking hate London. And I, I would go back to where I'm from, like uh, in the Midlands, which is a more kind of, I don't know how you would compare it, kind of more rural, but kind of gritty in a really shit way. Like, it's not very cool. It's just kind of shit, you know. It's mm -hmm. poor, broken down. The shops are all closed, you know. Kids are like 11 years old getting drunk, yeah. smoking, you know, and stuff like that. Anyway, so I, I go to the boxing gym where I'm from, and it's not like a big white area. Like, it's very mixed. And I've been going there since I was like 12. And, you know, and I tell them, oh, mate, you wouldn't believe what these they're going on about. And literally the reaction was just like, huh, oh, weird. 
You know, they just didn't even care. They're not even engaged. They were just like, that's so stupid and worthless. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I'm out here working for like five pound an hour. Like, Jake, do you think I care about these cretins in London who are, you know, and this ain't, I'm not even talking about like, you know, it's very easy to do the kind of criticism. Oh, yeah, well, white guys would say that. I'm talking about every race you can think of just like, just not interested, you know, just getting on with life. And I, I generally think most working class communities in the UK, at least, are like that like people might have a moan and you know get up in arms after reading something on twitter but generally they just like whatever like we've got worse shit to deal with you know than worrying about microaggressions and all that nonsense you know nobody actually i think on the whole gives a fuck about whatever twitter's talking about today or yesterday or, or will be talking about tomorrow let's talk about pi i think i think theories might be an interesting place to start because i watched it again last night because I knew we were going to be doing this. Um, yeah. And I, I was thinking, it's the first time I've ever actually done this. You know, I just, I don't really kind of try and come up with theories as I'm watching films. I'm just kind of, you know, just uh, watch it. And I was, I, for me, I don't know what, what, how to explain it, but I think, so, so he has, uh, Max has, you know, I don't know, like a brain hemorrhage or whatever you can say. And he has these strokes yeah. and a guy dies from a stroke when he, he comes up with this golden ratio, which is like the pattern for life, which basically would argue that there is intelligent creation behind life, the world, you know, mm. um, whether that's God or whatever, who knows. And for me, this kind of breakdown that he has, part of me, that part of that speaks to me is in like, no matter what we do, we cannot beat nature. You know, we can build our forts, we can do whatever, we can build our weapons, we will never beat nature, you know, and that for me is the point there, as in like, you know, if you, as in like, if you try and work out the code, you're just gonna, you're gonna get broken down, you know, and also yeah. it does tie into this, I, I don't buy into this weird concept, but you know, like, uh, what's that psychopath, man? Not psychopath, but people say he is uh, Elon Musk. So, so he. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think he is, but people joke about him being a robot or something, a psychopath. But um, yeah. But he has. He says about like, oh, we're living in a simulation. Obviously, I don't believe that. But um, you know. Well, it, why not? Why why don't you believe that? Ah, man, like the fuck. It's just. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. It just seems so out there. You know, it's it's very easy to just be like, well, I don't understand how all this happened. So therefore robots you know or aliens it's just the same as religion i'm not religious i'm not saying i'm, a, I'm an atheist but i'm not religious because sure i, I, don't, I don't necessarily explain that away you know yeah i don't i don't necessarily subscribe to that that idea either i think it's intriguing i don't dismiss it entirely that there could be an elaborate simulation to this or something have you ever had a a, a near-death experience yeah, well, I, you know, I, I don't know how you would class this because people have said to me, oh, you must have nearly died like, on the front line. Nearly dying to me would be getting shot and like nearly bleeding to death, not like a bullet going a, a bit close to your head, you know. So I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say I have uh, whilst in conflict. There has certainly been times there was I remember one time in southeast Turkey. We were embedded with the, uh, the the PKK, the you know Kurdish militants and the Turkish, uh, I can't remember the army or like the gendarmerie, but, you know, basically they were firing a big gun somewhere, you know, and it was very dark. The electric had been cut out. And I remember for a minute just thinking, looking around and just thinking, you know, seeing teenagers with fires wrapped around their heads with machine guns, not knowing where the fuck the gunfires come from. And I just thought like, oh God, like, you know, I, I remember thinking, why are you here? What have you done now? You know, like you're going to get killed. Um, oh yeah. And then I went to, I, this is, I don't want to get too much into this to derail it, but I got sent to prison in Turkey, charged with terrorism, basically just for doing my job. We all know. Oh yeah. 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 We know what journalism's like in Turkey, you know, like everybody's a terrorist if they don't toe the party line. 
and that i thought like we're gonna get killed in jail like i was certain we were gonna get killed in jail because we were in with isis but uh but no i wouldn't say i've had one time i, I jumped in a river when i was like 10 to go swimming with my friends and it was so cold <laughs> i thought i was gonna die because i couldn't breathe and yeah. so that's probably the closest thing I did want to ask you about that turkey thing, because, you know, if you type your name into Google, it's like Jake Hanrahan, leader of ISIS or, or some shit like that. Yeah, like, yeah no, they came up with, yeah, it's not quite that, but they came up with this ridiculous, um, <laughs> this ridiculous charge. They charged us with being members of the PKK, a Kurdish militant group fighting ISIS in Syria. Mm. and being members of ISIS at the same time. And we were like, what? Like, how the fuck does that work? And then they eventually, even they realized how ridiculous that is and kind of cut the charge to just members of the PKK, which I am not. I've never fired a weapon in my life. I am not a terrorist. You know, I'm not interested in uh, hurting anybody. We were just there, you know, but I believe in embedded journalism. I think it's useful. So we were embedded with this militant group whilst the war was on. And of course, you know, Turkey now... The state that it's in, they don't like you doing stuff like that. So yeah, they hit us with a terror charge, man. Me and two of my mates, and um, we were sent to four different prisons. We weren't in long. Like me and my friend Phil, we're like white kids from the west, so we did like eleven days. Our friend, um, who's Kurdish, I don't want to name him just in case, but he, um, you can find his name, but he, uh, he did hundred and thirty-one days. You know, so Ooh. that was terrible. Yeah, yeah, and all the cases are still ongoing. It's it's outrageous. You know, we've we've not done anything wrong. Um, but yeah, so it was weird. It was weird. We they ended up putting us in prison with ISIS, you know, like Chechen ISIS fighters who'd been picked up on the border coming from Syria. And no joke, there was the last prison we were in in Adana, the deportation prison. These guys had open bullet wounds, some of them in their arms, where they, you know, they were coming into Turkey to go to hospital to get it fixed up and go back to fight. And the police caught them and sent them to this prison because they're from Chechnya. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, like, they're going to kill us. <laughs> like, we're the only guys here. And luckily, these kind of tough Afghan guys and this one Palestinian lad kind of protected us. They made us, they made a shiv, like this prison shiv out of like a lighter and a sharpened teaspoon. And uh, yeah, man, it was something else. You know, eating breakfast with ISIS was fucking weird. That should be the uh, the name of your autobiography is eating breakfast with ISIS. <laughs> yeah, Brex breakfast with Dashis, like not yeah. Tiffany's. Yeah, that's really something, man. So, and that's what's holding up the uh, the trouble with trying to get to the U.S. Right? Yeah. So, so that's actually really annoying. So I applied for my you know my visa stuff. I wanted to come to America. I had work to do actually. CBS were going to fly me out to do some work. I've never been to America and I can't afford to fly on my own. So I was like, great, this is amazing. I went to the embassy and my friend Phil, who I was in prison with like two years, uh, sorry, a year after we were in prison, he went to America. So I was like, he's got exactly the same charges. He's actually been to more countries on the blacklist than I have. So I'll mm -hmm. be fine. So they said to me, you know, I got there and they said, no, you've been to Iraq and you were done for terrorism. You can't come. And I was like, what the fuck? So, you know, it's kind of on appeal right now, but I've been waiting for four months to even hear back, you know. So I, I don't know. It's um I'm clearly not a terrorist, you know. And look at Brunson, the the pastor, the pastor they were holding, the, the American citizen, Turkey were holding him for so long. I think he's still under like house arrest or something like that now. So they know that how ridiculous these uh these situations are with that country, but I don't know, they won't let me they won't let me come over. It's it's annoying. And I've got no previous convictions. I've never been um convicted of a crime in Britain, so it's nothing to do with that, you know. I've never been a drug dealer or anything like that, you know. So it's uh, it's annoying. Yeah, that's ridiculous. With pie, uh, you're talking about all these numerous interpretations of it. Let me ask you, what do you think is the reality of Pi. Because we see it, I, I find Max to be, and I think, you know, this is just a given, he's an unreliable narrator. There's so much 
that clashes and, uh, you know, conflicts with earlier moments in the film and later moments in the film. Yeah, so I think my first, when I first ever watched it, I just took it for the film that it was. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting story, you know, a fiction story about there being a golden ratio and people being able to work it out, which will then let this one guy uh, that we should mention, I should have mentioned that, that, that the one guy, Max, can then, because he's worked out this number or comes close, can start predicting the stock market. And that is... There's the the kind of big bang of the story, I think, because it's fascinating. Because from that, you have the Hasidic Jews who are... There's actually a specific sect. I forget the name. There's a few, but these Hasids that actually believe in, you know, there being a golden ratio and that the Torah Mm -hmm. is a code from God, which is very interesting. And I think... You know, they, they come to Max and they want him because if he knows the golden ratio, he can then somehow translate the code and work out this 216-digit number. And then you've got these kind of stock market Wall Street lizard vultures that are like want him because then they can be the most successful and make all the money. And then yeah. you've got his friend, um, Saul, who he tried to work it out. So he kind of wants him to be around and keeps telling him not to, to, to kind of forget it. But you can tell he wants him to get it because Saul never got there. So there's very, you know, Max is being pulled in all these directions. And I think he's just a guy that is just into his numbers. He's like a geek. He's got all these computers and he just wants to be left alone. He likes what he does, but he just wants to be left the fuck alone. You know, I don't think he wants glory. He doesn't want anything like that. He just wants to solve the problem which is really, I, I love that idea, you know, is he just wants to be left alone and do his own thing. I think that's that's cool and no one lets him. And I also think, I was thinking about this last night and it's going to sound like probably a bit intellectual, like wanky, like whatever, but there's this, <laughs> there's this bit where he's got this beautiful neighbour and she like she's very she's very like sexy you know she knows how to be kind of enticing and every time she sees him she's kind of playing with him a little bit like being nice but being a bit like oh why don't you come in max kind of vibe and you can tell he's he wants to but he doesn't and there's one moment where he hears her having sex through the wall and he like loses his composure while he's doing his research and for me i was like is that is that the idea of like he could have a little, there's like the normal life for him is calling. Like he could have this nice chilled out, you know, life with this, you know, hang out with this beautiful girl and, and whatever, but he, he can't ever let it happen. You know, that that is quite interesting to me. She's kind of, I don't think she's like um, a problem to his work. It's the work is the problem from his, and you know, happy life perhaps, you know, that's that's something I thought was quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, there's so many different theories you can come up with. And I, I think my favorite thing is that it's just a story about a guy who's worked out the golden ratio and pi and, you know, the secrets to, to nature, you know, and and that we have some kind of intelligent build somehow. I'll tell you what, my interpretation of the movie after two viewings was that, uh, Max maybe understands numbers, but that he's a paranoid schizophrenic and that none of the characters actually exist except for Saul. Ah, I never thought about that. Because we see uh, the neighbor disappear oh, fuck, at the end. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Sorry, yeah. And then uh, you, you do have the ending where it's like, ah, he's finally at peace. And then that little Chinese girl comes up to him and he's, you know, having a ball in the park or something. Kind of creepy. I don't know. Uh, yeah, she asks him um, how to work out some huge uh, multiplication. And he says, I don't know. And I was like, is that because he drilled his head or whatever and now he doesn't know? Or is that because um, he just wants her to work it out and he's at peace with the world now because he knows the number? That's what I thought. Now he knows it. 
he's like, oh, I know. I know when I die, there's something else, or I know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, it's a weird ending. It is kind of creepy. Th- as well, yeah. That that and, uh, you know, how the Hasidic Jews and also the, uh, you know, the agents are kind of portrayed, you know, it almost has a vibe of, like, oh, they're out to get you, you know, which a lot of these... Paranoia. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and so I, I came to the conclusion that I, I just thought that that was all in his imagination. Maybe... Uh, you know, I, I saw that there were some people talking about how Aronofsky was trying to communicate how the film is about the line between genius and insanity. And I think that could be the case. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's probably the main theme. And I, I get a similar vibe from Saul where maybe, you know, he seems like he knows what he's talking about. But do these guys actually know what they're talking about or are they just nuts? You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, like I said, there are actual people that are trying to get close to it. Now, I'm, I'm like you. I cannot do maths. Uh, I am absolutely appalling at it. It's unbelievable how bad I am at maths. So I don't understand anything to do with it. So I don't want to talk like I do. But right. you know, there are these sects and there are these these communities and groups that do believe that you know everything can be well. well um, uh, Pythagoras, right? Pythagoras had like a cult, basically. Right. They say in the film formed around this kind of idea of uh, being able to explain the world away with numbers and whatever. So there are certainly people out there that, that believe it. But then, yeah, it does come down to it. It's like, are these guys just full of shit, you know? They're, there are people, like we said earlier, there are like people that in the current year believe in neo-Nazism. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, they, they just these numerologists just full of shit like those people, you know? Maybe, maybe it's just nonsense, you know? I mean... People read, you know, oh, Aquarius. Oh, yeah, that's totally me. You yeah, know, yeah, people yeah. believe in that. So perhaps it is that. It, it's definitely an interesting movie that deserves further exploration. I think a, probably a bigger crowd of people to check it out. It is one of his more, uh, well, back in the day, I think he was pretty well known for that in Requiem for a Dream. But nowadays, you know, uh, all, all he's known for is, uh, you know, Black Swan, Mother. I watched that movie Mother recently. I couldn't stand how fucking... Uh, I'm not interested. What, uh, what was it like, man? Okay, so... And actually, you know, this 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 provides a good contrast between Aronofsky as a young filmmaker and Aronofsky now, where I think with Pi and with Requiem for a Dream, and even The Wrestler with uh, Mickey Rourke. Did you ever see The Wrestler? Yeah, I like that, actually. Yeah, that was, that was a good movie. That was probably his is last... Is that him? Yeah. Fuck, I didn't even know I actually really like that film, yeah. I want to say he got Best Director, or he was nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards that year, where, uh, you know, these movies dabble with a... I gotta turn my fucking phone off. These movies deal with a certain kind of, like, vagueness to the story. It doesn't spell out much of anything to you or how it resolves itself. And then you take a look at Aronofsky's more commercial career after he did that uh, Noah film with Russell Crowe, which was a disaster. Oh, yeah. So Mother is, like... You know, he thinks it's so deep or whatever. It's just like Christian themes and Jennifer Lawrence's Mother Earth and Javier Bardem is is God. And this is how, you know, humans corrupt the earth, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like so fucking on the nose and painfully bad. I, I, I don't understand how, you know, that movie got the audience that it did. It's like his concept was just him going like, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. And I, I, uh, I watched uh, an interview at some like festival or a screening between him and William Friedkin, and just like their differing schools of thought. Are you familiar with William Friedkin at all? Uh, it rings a bell. Remind me, sorry. Uh, he he's an older familiar, uh, filmmaker. He's in his seventies now. He did uh, the French Connection, The Exorcist. Oh yeah, yeah. He had a really bad movie come out this year, a documentary called 
the devil and father remorse where he kind of retreads the same territory as the exorcist where he goes out to i think maybe italy and uh you know he's doing a documentary on this girl who thinks she's possessed and there's an exorcism there and it's like it's actually really cringe how out of touch he is because he adds like a voice filter to the girl's voice to give her like a demonic sound and uh you know he didn't get any footage at the end so he was like i went to this church and met the girl and then thunder and lightning started pouring and she recited all my dead family members names and attacked me it's just like dude come on come on you made the exorcist what? you're not Werner Herzog <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna put yeah, it off like just somewhere. just just quit while you're ahead here but yeah he was having a conversation about spirituality and religion with Darren Aronofsky and uh Aronofsky doesn't really seem to be a religious kind of guy he's like well science is my religion dick answer like that and Fr Friedkin wasn't really accepting that he was like do you believe in heaven and Aronofsky's like yeah well it's kind of a personal thing do you believe in God just like cutting him off just being belligerent it was great uh, but it really showcased how Aronofsky's kind of lost his touch once he started delving into the movie a little, where, you know, he overexplains things. And I think this is really the flaw in any kind of film, especially like uh, uh, like this. If, if he were to make this today, it would be ruined as a result of overexplanation. I, I think vagueness is really key to... What, pie? Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Everything has to be... You're right. Everything has to have, like, this finite... You know, the baseline is, yeah, you're right. I, I think that's the over-commercialization of films and just the, the absolute cesspit of Hollywood, mm -hmm. you know, where everything has to be kind of very surface deep. You know, I think that's, I don't know. I, I, I think that's why, you know, I don't really watch a lot of mainstream films anymore because I just, I, I, God, I sound like some fucking loser. Like, <laughs> I don't watch mainstream films. But you know what I mean? I'm just not interested because I'm like, eh, you know, it's kind of, I can kind of see where this is going or whatever, but... Yeah, you know, like, you got to, I don't know, I just don't understand it, you know, I don't I don't understand the, the draw, like, I'm just like, eh, like, I'm like you're saying, I want something that's a bit vague, or a bit like, oh, okay, where's this going, or, you know, I'm not really, I don't want it over explained to me, you know, I, I want to come up with my own stupid yeah. ideas. Well, I mean, that that's, I mean, we're, we're proving the point here, we're having this conversation about the two varying interpretations of it. Sorry to cut you in, but you're right there, it creates this fun thing where you can just have a chat with your mates and be like, oh yeah, I think this, okay, I think that. You know, if if you're watching, I don't know, what was those shit films like The Avengers or something? You can't really do that. You just yeah. be like, whoa, did you see his uh, shield? Like, I'm not interested <laughs> in that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. And I actually think that maybe maybe not the majority of people, but there's a growing amount of people that just feel disillusioned with the kind of entertainment that we're being uh, you know, force-fed, essentially, today, where it doesn't give much room to thought. They appeal to lowest common denominator thinkers and, uh, you know, foreign audiences, which are really easily appeased with, like, special effects. Like, China dictates what kind of movies are made in Hollywood right now. Because really? they're the ones who are showing up to the theater. Yeah. Bo box office uh, numbers are actually pretty down, last I checked. I, it, maybe they spiked in 2017, but it's been otherwise like a very steady downward trajectory, which is why everything's going to Netflix. And, you know, there was a big emphasis on TV shows for a while, but now it's just really direct to streaming films. So I, I do think that we're in the process of having the landscape of cinema and everything else changed. And also, I, I, I feel like the, the markers of what is defined as a movie or what is defined as a TV show or even just like a video online like that's going to eventually dissolve. I I think we're almost kind of there. Yeah, I think it. 
I I have a very kind of specific thought on this because I remember being, you know, when I was, sorry to go on again, but when I was at Vice News, it was all like, fuck the TV, we don't need the networks, like we're on YouTube, it's cool, like we're doing our thing, we can do, we can make an 11 minute film or a 10 minute film or a 22.5 minute film, it doesn't matter, you know, we're out here doing our thing and then all of a sudden when you know Shane or whoever saw the kind of dollar signs and smelt the money and you know made the abomination that is Viceland as you so um correctly defined it in the or however it is you explained it in your film oh well thank you uh, yeah it's, it's great it made me laugh man um but you know when that happened they suddenly were like oh yeah we need a tv show we need to go all that stuff we said about old media like forget that now and that really ruined it for me. I was like, what? Like, this is, where's the ethos gone? Because, you know, stupidly and naively, I believed that. I was like, yeah, man, this is cool. This is the ethos. And obviously, that was just kind of a spinning, you know, you, they just spun that, I guess. Because, like I said, when they saw the money, that wasn't ethos anymore. It just, yeah, let's put all our all our eggs in the basket of the TV show and the channel. Um, but I believe that ethos is still out there everywhere. You know, there's loads of people like you and me who... And we're, we're bitter kind of guys. I think that's obvious. I'm a bitter guy, you know, like <laughs> I'm not happy that things have gone the way they have, but I'm glad I'm like that because it's made me go, okay, let me see what else is out there. Um, basically just through having the door shut in my face because I'm not good enough or don't, you know, appeal to what they want. So I think it's, you know, in, um, what is it you say? You know, low res, like fucking pain is good for the body. Like I, I understand that concept, you know, I think it makes you go out there and look for other things. So I, I guess my point is I... I don't even particularly want, I'm so up my ass with this. Maybe I don't even really want this Hollywood shit to fall down. Maybe I quite like there being this niche for freaks like you and me to kind of be in, you know, and, and, you know, yeah. those films they make, I say they're shit, but you know, loads of my friends watch them. And obviously you don't want to go into like deep, meaningful stuff. You know, every night I watch this Scottish comedian, Limmy streaming video games, just talking shit you know, because I don't want to be involved in the same stuff I'm involved in when I'm working. So I understand it, but um, I don't know what my point is. <laughs> I just think there is a niche out there. There is a little groove. There's a little trench for us all to go through. And I think you're right in that it actually might start getting better now for us. Or what will happen is basically media will become like a Netflix comedy special, which, you know, is I almost think sometimes that calling them comedy specials is ironic because so very few of them are funny, you know, and it's just, it's just unbelievable what they'll put out there. So my worry is that that might happen to all media where they're like, Hey, streaming, forget the TV. And then it's just pumping out the same crap on a different platform. It could very well be. It's like how, um, you know, when the internet used to be the wild west and now it's very much not, you know, that, that I think I worry that that might happen to the, this kind it, of independent media. It is crazy how I feel like only six years ago, you could very easily just download a torrent of any movie. And now I have to fucking maybe maybe I'm just getting old. I no, no, know. you're right. No, there, there used to be websites. You didn't even have to download yeah. a torrent. You just go. Uh, I used to watch it like watch movies now TX or something. And yeah. yeah, cool. Off we go. Now you got to jump through hoops in order to find anything. I, I, I wind up. 25% of the time, I'm just getting malware instead. I, it's awful. But, uh, you know, you, you just said something that I was thinking about literally last night, which was, uh, do you even really want that kind of blow up that would lead to commercial viability? Because, you know, something I've gotten a whole lot since I started on YouTube about a year ago, which was, uh, it has been like, oh, well, I'm I'm shocked you don't have more subscribers or whatever. But I feel like, what you said about Vice, where they wanted to go completely independent for a while, 
And then obviously that changed when they got a hold of some money and their priorities altered. Uh, could that have actually been in earnest? Because I, I feel like there are so many people that are like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All this mainstream shit sucks. I would never do that. But then they reached a certain level and they start thinking a little more rationally, maybe, or, or logically. I don't even think it's necessarily a, a nefarious kind of thought, like, I have to do something that's safe. I think it's just more like, I got to protect my livelihood. This, this is my living now. And mm. not like, I'm lucky to have reached this point. I know, I know what you mean, but I think, I think that's true of a lot of people will do that. But I also think you have to keep your integrity, you know, over yeah. everything, over absolutely everything. I'm a bit of a purist, man. Like I have people contacting me saying, hey, I want to sponsor an episode of Popular Front. And if I don't like what they're doing or it doesn't fit with Popular Front, I'm, I'm like, ah, mate, like, I just feel like the listeners and the viewers would just go, Jake, what are you doing? You've been full of shit yeah. this whole time. You know, if I suddenly start going, uh, popular front. By the way, there's a mattress that you should really get a good night's sleep on <laughs> after the front line. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. people are going to be like, fuck you, Jay. You know, and I think in the sea of shit that there is out there with all this superficial nonsense, if you can be someone that just goes, yeah, you know, I'm not into that. And I, I actually am not. And I will be honest with you guys. I think people rate that. You know, I think honesty is a good currency now, whereas it hasn't been for a long time. But I think people are. Look, normal people, normal consumers are not stupid. There is a big, I've said this for a long time, the big problem with journalism, or at least the circles I'm in, is this presumption that people are stupid. You know, I, I would say I had um, a big meeting with the BBC a couple of weeks ago. I had this series idea where I want to go to all these underreported conflicts that you never fucking hear about that are going on right now and make like a six episode series, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh in Armenia, Libya, everybody's forgotten about that. Loads of, loads of conflicts still going on. And they were like, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that. You know, oh, no one cares wow. about that. And I thought, man, you, you are like 200 grand a year and you live in, you know, Primrose Hill, a very affluent area. You're some like old white guy who's going to be dead in 20 years. And, you know, the stuff you commission is absolute shit. So how do you know what people like? You know, it's, it's like people don't like that. Well, you're dictating what people like, basically. And, you know... It, it, you can see it people were watching tv but they're watching a lot less you know and, and they're going out there to other places so i think the people the gatekeepers if you like uh but my right my whole ethos is basically finding ways to just jump past the gatekeepers you know like i realized mm -hmm. popular front the things i want to do i thought the only way i can do this now is to create my own platform so i just do it you know and i think just getting around the gatekeepers and i think it's important to keep that ethos even if you get big like i want as many subscribers and as many listeners and as much fucking money as i can make don't get me wrong i want that Hell yeah. but i want that because that then in my opinion gives the freedom sure. you know in this world we live in now there is no there is going to be no revolution i'm sorry and i'm not talking about political like media i don't think there's going to be a revolution but the way to do it is have my own autonomous way of you know having my little empire which is maybe naive but we'll see you know i'm trying and it might fuck up you know and i might you know i might lose the way I'm, I'm like <laughs> i'm like i'm every week i'm about a week away from losing my flat but i'm having fun and i'm i'm the happiest i've ever been probably you know in my career so and uh, there's yeah. something to be said for integrity because it's not just not like i'm some great guy or you're some great guy but i think people just appreciate honesty do you think having that kind of money to bankroll whatever it is you're doing which could be equated to commercial viability in some way. Do you think that's even possible to sustain that and also have kind of priorities in the right place? Or do you think that affects the mindset enough where things start to change? And also, do you think that it even can be uh, 
accomplishable on on a long-term basis because it seems like anybody who goes really independent for a while anyway at least i, I don't know i'm I, maybe i'm making a broad stroke here no, no, they you seem mean. to be you know people try to take them down or they do get taken down after a while if they pose a threat to the legacy i kind of feel like if popular front gets to where i want it to get i think people will just leave it alone maybe that's naive Pardon me, but I think people will leave it alone and maybe just start copying it for a bit, or they'll poo-poo it and be like, "Oh, that's that dickhead Jake Hanrahan." Like, I don't think it's the sort of thing. Because when you get really niche, I don't think people they look at it and they might be like, "Oh, I don't like that," or that he shouldn't be doing this, or he's a bit of a threat to us. But you know, when it's really niche, eh, people I think they'll just get over it. You know, I think. Like, put it this way, if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't be like, oh, I need a Porsche. I don't give a shit about a Porsche, you know, I don't want that. You know, and the people that want the Porsche might be like, oh, well, he doesn't want the Porsche, so, like, we don't even, he's not, in, we're not interested in yeah. him. You know what I'm saying? I, that might be a weird analogy, but I think when you are, like, trying to make it independently, you perhaps don't want the same things. You know, I want recognition and I want um, to spread what I think is important via popular front, but... I don't want like HBO to come and pick us up because I know that wouldn't work. If Netflix were like, hey, we're going to give you a series, I would be like, okay, well, here's my stipulations. It has to be like this. And anyone that knows me knows I would do that and I wouldn't do it if it weren't right because I, I've I've destroyed projects that I've worked very hard on when people have ruined them. I completely blacklisted myself from Vice News because I openly said what I thought about them. Um, you know, so I don't mind kind of burning my bridges to stay warm. You know what I'm saying? Because for me, sure. the staying warm bit is is me just feeling happy in what I produce. You know, I really believe in what I'm doing, and I think I think other people do as well. You know, I see it, and people say, "Oh, fuck me! I'm glad someone else has has got this vibe. I, I'm glad someone else thinks that this is important." Um, yeah, and I, I like it, and like I like working hard. And uh, this is going to be really odd now. This is a really weird thing to talk about. But you know what you were saying about oh, can anyone get like rich and famous? I guess and still kind of keep their ethos or stay independent. Now that guy PewDiePie, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know that yeah. weird guy. Yeah. So I never found him funny. Watched his videos years ago when he kind of blew up. I was like, what the fuck? Like, don't get it. Annoying. The other day, somehow I, I like fell asleep. My my YouTube was I don't know went on some weird cycle. And a PewDiePie video was on. I like woke up like, oh God, not this guy. And I know there's a lot of controversy around him. I'm not saying I'm like backing PewDiePie or whatever, but I heard what you're saying. I was like, this, this guy's funny. Like he's making me laugh, you know? Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's quite funny, right? And then I watched a few of the videos and I was like, ah, oh, because of the controversies, he's been dropped from all his commercial places, but he makes millions. The guy's worth like 10 million. Um, and I was like, well, now he's funnier than he's ever been because he's, you know, he's kind of free to just fuck around. And, and if you, and I looked into him even more, he doesn't, you know, he owns a nice flat in Brighton and, you know, he's got a few nice cars, but he's not a big spender. And he even has a bit talking about it. He's like, if you, he's like, what am I going to be doing? Like PewDiePie in 30 years? And it's like, yeah, of course not. You know, so I, I, I think <laughs> it's such a weird thing to go on about, but like, I just thought, Ah, oh, that is kind of cool, you know, like he's yeah. kind of, he's got money, but he, and a lot of YouTubers actually, you know, like, um, you know, the man Wang, you know, like Justin Wang, like we both like him, right? Yeah, that's a buddy of mine. He's getting really successful and his videos are just getting better and better. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think he would sell out. I, he doesn't seem that kind of guy to me because I just think that, right, the reason why is because what he's making videos about is just shit he's interested in, which yeah. is exactly what I'm doing, exactly what you're doing. And I think if someone comes in and goes like, oh, you have to do it this. It starts feeling like work. I work my ass off, and I know you do too, but it doesn't feel like work. You know, I've worked on a building site, and I wanted to fucking hang myself because I couldn't stand the work. You know, when it starts feeling like work, for me, 
I'm out of here, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I like my work, I work hard, but you know what I'm saying, when it feels like a pain, I don't, that, I'm not interested anymore, and I think for a lot of people, they don't care, they're just like, cool, money, give me money, give me money, give me, yeah. give me praise, and whatever. comfort, yeah, the comfort, yeah, everything is harder, like, everybody says struggle is relative, kind of true, but everything is harder when you're broke, I don't care, everything, 100%, I've reached a point where I'm just like, yep, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to go be homeless and yeah, exactly. under Same. a bridge. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I think certain people just aren't cut out for that kind of, you know, office environment or whatever. And clearly the two of us fit that description. Probably most of YouTube uh, or successful YouTube anyway, anyone who has the kind of energy and passion to put into uh, all these countless videos on a consistent basis. That's, that's my problem is the consistency because I get rather bored doing things if, if like in a, on a steady uh, stream of things if i'm researching a, a documentary or something like this snl one that we we're talking about like i read six books for that and i'm just like i'm so i'm so done with documentaries after this i don't want to do any of this so i'm going to go cut right. over to you know the sketches or some, or whatever it might be which i have like five different things keeping me afloat just to keep me sane and, and but that's good because you can circle around you know you have different orbits i'm the same you know like i uh Every every night, you know, I, I just watch this long war documentary and I read this book about this. And then, like I said, I watch Limmy or I watch, you know. Just, Great recommendation, by the way. Limmy. I checked Limmy, out, man. The most authentic motherfucker, man. He's brilliant. He's hilarious. When I was when I was on my 15-hour flight, uh, I downloaded a whole bunch of movies. And like I said before, you know, a lot of it turned out to be malware. The movie wasn't even there. <laughs> so so I, I was like, fuck, what am I going to watch? And I had all of uh, Limmy's show downloaded from your recommendation and i was just laughing my ass off throughout yeah. the flight he's so good he's so he's good so weird. i'm so glad you liked it because it's very even though he's scottish and the, the humor is all extremely scottish it's also kind of relative to to brits as well you know i was like i don't know if he's gonna get this but you know yeah he's I, th good. I thought it was so funny where he would just like pause a sketch or something it's like th this is really creative what he's doing here and kind of minimalist so it, it's interesting it got me thinking in different ways and you see limmy just just to tell you limmy did all of that he, uh, he, I didn't know this, but from listening to him for probably, I probably racked up about a thousand hours <laughs> watching Limmy, but he, he like made the music. He, you know, he decided how everything was shot. He did absolutely everything on it. Yeah, That's yeah. very interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that. To a degree, you know, but the whole thing was his concept. The whole thing was his idea. Yeah. That's something that I really uh, respond to is like these, these self-driven people that figure out like almost all of the aspects of the production. Like last week I was talking about this movie Thunder Road where uh, the director was also the writer and the star and the producer. And it can get like overwhelming if the wrong person is doing that. It can, it can, sometimes you'll get a Thunder Road, which will be good. And then sometimes you'll get like The Room. And <laughs> we know how that went. Oh, is that that guy who like funded his own film? Yeah, yeah. So, so it can it can absolutely be a mess if if you're this egomaniac and you don't know where to back absolutely, off. Or, yeah. You know, I was kind of surprised that you went with Pi. I was really expecting uh, just a war film based off of everything else you've you've put out there. Like, I, see, well, I, I don't really like war films. I'm not really into them. I've uh, I've seen very few that I'm like, oh, that's war. You know, like my my experience with war is very different, obviously, because I'm a, I'm a journalist and I'm you know I'm behind the front and I can leave whenever I want and. I don't fire any weapons, you know, so obviously I'm, I can't, I don't want to disrespect any soldiers or anything like that or any, or any insurgents or fighters or whatever. But uh, for me, I, I just watch them and I'm like, eh, this doesn't really, doesn't really, you know, most, a lot of what you do at war is just sitting around waiting for something to happen, drinking chai 
and chatting to guys holding prayer beads and stuff, you know, or like sitting in a ditch cold in Ukraine, like, oh, fuck, why am I here? You know, so, which even that I actually enjoy. I like the waiting around. I got friends, other journalists who were like, oh, I hate that part of the job. And I'm like, mate, this beats being in school and it beats working on the building site. I love it. I love it. I love all of it, you know. But um, when it comes to war films, I'm just, I just... It's a little, maybe it's either like, I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to me in any way because I've not experienced that kind of war or I'm just like, this is a bit too close to home. You know, I don't really want to, it's my work, but I need to unwind, you know, like I, I don't watch really even war documentaries very often anymore. Very rarely, actually. I used to watch them like compulsively and now I just, nah, it's, and also I have this problem where I'm like, if I'm watching this, I'm very aware that I can't make it, you know, I can't make this doc or I can't make this film because I'm not, I don't have the money or I don't, I'm not in the position I want to be in yet. And mm. it makes me nervous. That sounds weird, right? But it makes me nervous. Like if I watch your films, like your docs or whatever, I really like your kind of weird shit. Like um, what's the, uh, the, the one, you know, where you're brushing your girlfriend's hair at the end? Oh, that's Uncle Rich. Uncle Rich. Yeah, I love that. I've watched that so many times and I show my friend and he was like, what the fuck? He's like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> no, no offense, you know, but I was like, ah, oh, well, you don't get it. And, you know, and there's certain oh, things that um, I like that shit where it's like, I couldn't do that. And I don't know why it's appealing. You know, I don't know what it is. Something about it. I, I couldn't make it, you know. Whereas when I watch a war doc, I think, ah, I would have done this that way. Or I wouldn't have done that. Or I watch a film. And I'm like, ah, that wouldn't happen that way. Right. You're, you're looking at it from the angle of a specialist or, or somebody who's got a little experience. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm some kind of fucking wise guy, you know. But it, it is because I... I like my work, so I think, yeah, that wouldn't happen. Um, there's actually a very interesting... Um, so the the, lit the actual conflict I was covering when I was arrested, very rarely does that get made. I don't think there's any big films about it. Um, and there is some Kurdish uh, filmmakers who are actually really good at what they do. Like, sometimes you get, like, um, pro real bad propaganda films, but these guys... Uh, what's his name? Ersin Jelic, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's making this amazing film about the actual conflict that I was on the ground for, you know? So that, I'm actually very interested to see how that pans out um, because I was... I think, like, me and maybe two other reporters covered it from the, from the you know, the places we did. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very undercovered. So that I'm interested in because I want to be like, what's his interpretation of something I've seen? You know, so that's different. And I can't say if he's wrong or right because it's just his different interpretation, you know. It's very quiet. Like, they filmed a load of it in Syria in, like, Rojava in the Kurdish areas without telling anybody. And then all of a sudden put a trailer out and people are like, what? Like, how, when has this been made, you know? And it looks very good and it's it's a bit romantic. Obviously, it's going to be pro-Kurds because the Kurds made it. But, uh, yeah, it looks cool. I, I would love to make fiction films one day. So if I won the lottery, I'd probably fund my own fiction film. It'd probably be, probably be awful, you know, but I would, um, for example, I would love to make a film about how, this is very, very niche now, but how the, uh, so what, what were they called? The official IRA in Northern Ireland. I think, that yeah, the officials. So they were like the old guard mm. who were like in their 40s or something when the troubles started and how the provost, the provisional IRA, like the youth that took over, how that happened, you know, because then the, the provisionals ended up killing a few of the official IRA guys being like, fuck you guys, like we're taking over now. We're the extreme guys. We're going to get right. stuff done. So I would, I would love, I think that'd be a very interesting film. In fact, there's a film called 71, a very good war film actually about Northern Ireland. And uh, that is actually a very good film because it's very empathetic to, to 
the struggle of normal people on both sides. They very briefly cover it, and it, that's where I got the idea from. I won't lie. I was like, that would be a good film in itself. 71. I haven't seen that, but I'm actually I'm familiar with it. I uh, has Jack O'Connell. He's, he's I'm in it. That's actor. me. Everyone says, you look like Jack O'Connell. Like He's a better-looking version of you. I'm like, all right, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> I mean, he is, but still, yeah. But no, no, it's, it's a good film. He's a very good actor as well. He's actually from near where I'm from as well, so I think he's very good. You actually pointed out something that I think is, for me personally anyway, as a, just a viewer, uh, the flaw in a lot of these war films, which is uh, they take on kind of a romantic or sentimental angle towards whatever conflict is going on, especially in like Hollywood war films. Like I, I can't stand to watch something like, uh, like, I don't know, like a saving private Ryan or something. Like it, it just feels very inauthentic or artificial. Nobody talks how they talk in that film. No one's like, we got to do this for king country. You know, yeah. it's just, it doesn't, nobody does that. The, the way people talk on the front line is my favorite thing ever because all political, all whatever, everything is stripped back and it's about as fucking raw as you can get because you guys are trusting each other with their lives, you know? And I, I, there's, there's something very special and close bonding, you know, like nothing else matters. You got debt back home, it doesn't matter. We just got to survive right now, you know? So that that's very interesting. But sorry, go on. Well, I was just thinking off the top of my head, like war films that I've actually enjoyed. And there's maybe about three and two of them are from uh, Stanley Kubrick. And I, I talked about one earlier on the show, uh, not this show, but in, on an earlier episode, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Have you seen Full Metal Jacket? Yeah, yeah. Very good movie. Passive Glory, probably Kubrick's best film. And then um, Come and See, which is a very, very low-key Russian film about World War II, which I'm, I'm going to try to cover that, that on film, a future episode. Fucking hell, that's brutal, isn't it? Come and See is brutal. Yeah, you've seen it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, yeah. really good, yeah. I have no problem watching anything, but that is about as difficult of a watch as you can get For as real. far as subject matter goes. Great film, great film. Yeah. Uh, just to, just to you know, close the case on Pi, because we've talked about it so much, and I feel like Pi is literally like 30% of this episode. Yeah, sorry, we did ramble. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I just think everybody should go and watch it. I think it's a very... What I love about it is the aesthetics of it. Um, it's very stripped back. It's it's kind of uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's, it's all black and white, and it's grayscaled and saturated to the point where sometimes you can't even see what's going on, and yeah. it feels very gritty, very dirty. Which I, for me, I think that's kind of how Max thinks. You know, like I've felt like that before. Like I've got a hundred thoughts at once, and I'm just like, you know, I'm too stupid to process them, and I'm like, ah, you know, it kind of has that vibe. And to be honest, it's one of the most tense films i've ever seen you know the whole thing is just incredibly intense it's not the kind of thing you want to watch before bed because you know you might be up thinking about it but it's very i don't know it's, it's just really makes you stand up and just go wow like, i'm gonna watch this and like i said the subject matter is so intricate but it's kind of dealt with in this really normal kind of basic way in his apartment and just through meeting various people in New York. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, I'm sure someone else would like, uh, I don't know, that guy who made uh, Transformers would like destroy it and make, you know, like you would see the membrane of God like crashing sure. into his house or something. But the way no, I make it better, made if that. anything, I, th I think they should, <laughs> yeah. do a, they should do a full on colorization of Pi, just like they did It's a Wonderful Life. Right? Someone will remake it maybe and destroy it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's just the way Aronofsky made it. I, like I said, very stripped back and like just, I think it's a really beautiful film in a kind Kind of ugly way i know that sounds kind of lame but you know everyone in it is kind of a you know apart from his neighbor is kind of a 
bit of an ugly character, not not visually, not just visually, but in many ways, you know. Even Max himself, I think it's quite interesting. Everybody's trying to get something from each other. The ancient Japanese considered the Gobord to be a microcosm of the universe. Although, when it is empty, it appears to be simple and ordered. The possibilities of gameplay are endless. They say no two go games have ever been alike, just like snowflakes. So, the go board actually represents an extremely complex and chaotic universe. And that is the truth of our world, Max. It can't be easily summed up with math. There is no simple path. Yeah, I think the most depressing thing about this movie is that nobody aside from Aronofsky really got any work at all after this movie. Aside from uh, the guy who played Saul, he's in uh, Breaking Bad and... Yeah, he's yeah. What about the guy, the lead actor, Sean... Uh, what's his name? Nah, he disappeared. He's, really? He's, he's so good, I think. Yeah, he's, he's very good, but if you take a look at... I, you know, I was like, oh, what has this guy done? Because surely... He must have a nice career now also. I, I think I maybe recognized one other thing that he had done, and there's only like six movies on his IMDb. Maybe he wasn't like an actor. He could have just been some guy who happened to be a friend of Darren Aronofsky's. Yeah, maybe, but he's very good. I think he portrays the, the fear and the frustration of just like wanting someone to leave you alone. I think he's really good at it. Anything else regarding film? Because we're, we're about to hit the 90-minute mark here, which means i got to close out the episode. Uh, shortly, um, I don't know, man. I, I watch I watch quite a lot of films. I I don't know about you, but I rewatch films probably more than I watch new films. I know you don't do that actually, because I, I know you watch loads of films for the podcast. But I rewatch a lot of old films. I'm not sure why, but um, oh, there's actually there's one film I want to tell you to watch. Ah, man, I'm looking at it now. Uh, Catch Me, Daddy. Have you seen that? No, I haven't even heard of it. I'm gonna Google it right now. Oh, it's amazing! It's incredible. One of the darkest, most intense films. Very quiet. It's about this young. Um, well, they never say what her religion is. This like young Indian or Pakistani kind of looking girl uh, in the north of England, and basically, I won't ruin it for you, but uh, her family. Yeah, this is not a spoiler. Her family want to honor kill her because she's with like this white Scottish guy. Most of the film is like the pursuit of uh, this family trying to find them and they recruit this weird racist guy to try and track them down and it's just unbelievably brutal. And the ending is one of the most brutal things I've ever seen in my life and it's not even, you don't really see a lot. You know, I, you got to watch it, man. Catch Me Daddy, amazing film. Thanks for confirming that she dies. No, 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 no. <laughs> we'll see. I'm actually I'm looking at the art of it right now, and it's got really interesting uh, poster art. And yeah, that 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 concept sounds great. I'm I'm gonna check it out for sure. One more thing. There's a scene in it where the actress, who is one of the best actors I've ever seen in my life, she's amazing, man. And if you're if you like if you're from the communities, maybe that like a lot of Brits are from, like just normal kind of backgrounds, you'll recognize she's got all the the little kind of weird idiosyncrasies, you know, she's very good at it. Like, there's a bit where where she's dancing to a Nicki Minaj song in this, like, trailer they're living in. It's just this mesmerizing scene, and, like, the guy is kind of moody, and she goes, why you got face on? And, like, it just means, why are you moody? But, like, the amount of times my grandma's like, why you got a face on? You know, or something like that. I think it's, I don't know, it's, it's a great British film, man. This sounds uh, this sounds excellent. I'm just looking at everything right now. I'm going to have to make a, make an effort to watch that within the next week or so. Um, I'm surprised a movie like this, well, not only got made, but didn't receive any backlash. 
given the subject matter. I think it did, but I think the filmmaker was, uh, I mean, if you watch the film, it's so good. And I think he was so confident in his research and what have you that it was just like, yeah, fuck off. Like, you know, whatever. Did you ever, uh, did you ever see Four Lions, the movie Four Lions? Yes, yeah. so good. Hilarious. You never movie. make it now, but it's incredible. The filmmaker, uh, what's his name? He's a, he's a big comedian in the UK, right? Um, Fuck, what is his name? I don't know. He had to go into hiding as a result of that. There was like a fatwa on his... Uh, you're joking me. I didn't even know that. Yeah. One. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. But the... Well, it kind of makes sense, actually, because the people he's mocking in that are extremists. You know, yeah. it's not taking the piss out of Islam at all. Because I think if you think it's taking a piss out of Islam, you're basically considering every Muslim to be an extremist terrorist. And one of the best uh, responses I've ever heard to that stupid argument is like, do you realize the most of the people that are fighting ISIS are Muslim? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's a very easy one to kind of dispel. Obviously, I'm not, you know, obviously there is big problems in that religion. Absolutely. Definitely. As there are with many religions. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. it's a stupid concept. For sure. Chris Morris was the name of the filmmaker. I think he had a sketch okay. comedy show uh, in the UK for a while. I don't recognize the name, you know, I don't know. But yeah, it's a great film. It's very good. It's very. I actually made a documentary with um, this young group of Irish kind of uh, Republican dissident militant types. And they were all kids. They were teenagers. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know their ass from their elbow. And we joked that that was like the Irish four lions. Like, yeah. You know, but it's it, you can make any extremist group look hilarious with that kind of concept, I think. Thank you for coming on the, the program and talking about really everything. I was going to say talking about pie, but really, I mean, this has just been a very general podcast, but I think that's... It's good. I think so. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think there's. Uh, I really miss having like long conversations like this. And now one of the only ways to do it is uh, on podcasts. I guess I should get friends. <laughs> you know, maybe I should get some friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, th that's the thing with me as well. Is you know, as I get older and the work is just more consuming. It's like, all right, yeah. There's not really a whole lot of time for social interaction. So like working with somebody yeah. is like the equivalent to a friendship for me now. It's like okay, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's good yeah. fun, man. Thank you.